ESPN 97.7 and 100.1. Watch live on QSportsTalk.com. This is On the Block with Brent Axe. Welcome back, friends. Great to have you here. Presented by Best Buy Auto Sales. Uh, the crazy world of college athletics. Trying to keep up with it. Especially now with the portal and name, image, and likeness. And bowl season approaches. Recruiting. Early signing day a week from today. If you see Dino Babers uh, walking down the street, he's going to look like uh, one of those jugglers at the circus. He's got like, you know, the swords and... All sorts of things in the air all at the same time. That is the life of uh, a college football coach here. And our next guest uh, knows all too well the ins and outs of the business of college football and bowl season and all of that. A pleasure to welcome him on the program. Great to have him here. The executive director of bowl season and somebody who's got a Syracuse story or two to tell, as we'll get into here shortly. Nick Carparelli with us here on the block, ESPN Radio, QSportsTalk.com. Nick, how you doing, bud? I'm doing great. Glad to be with you. Glad to have you. And, uh, boy, there is a lot to get into here. Let's start with bowl season and what that is and, Nick, what your role is in terms of bowl games because here we go pretty much now from here, and I love this, between now and about the middle of January, there's a bowl game on every day, and you got to love that. Yeah, absolutely. Who who doesn't love bowl games? Who doesn't love more college football? Yeah, bowl season is really two two descriptions of bowl season. One is the obvious. It's a it's a three week time of year in in late December, early January, where, where we have forty three bowl games full of unique matchups and unique destinations that you know we all turn on the TV and it's like a it's like a celebration of college football. We call it. Uh, but the other side of bowl season, it's a it's a it's an association. It's an organization that all forty three bowl organizations are a part of. Uh, we work collectively on certain projects. We have an annual meeting every year uh, where, where everybody who works for a bowl game, does business for a bowl game, comes together for four days of professional development. Uh, not, not a lot of people that do what those people do, so it's a great opportunity for them to get together with one another. And, um, and we, we, we market and we promote the bowl system collectively uh, while each of the individual bowl games markets th- th- themselves. So, so that, that, that's kind of who we are. Nick, I've said I'm not just saying this because you're on the show today. By the way, I've said for years people that mock bowl games. I'm like, well, here's the thing: people watch bowl games. People like football. Then those that would push back on say expanding the college football playoff. Oh, what's that going to do to the bowl system? And my answer has always been nothing because there's so many schools that won't make the playoff, no matter how big it is. Eight, sixteen, you know, ninety-six, whatever it is. Bowl games will always be there. So I want to get your thoughts on that and where. Bowl season is in the modern era of football. We're getting a bigger playoff and things that are different, but it feels like uh, the bowls are, are right there, willing and able and and steady, even in an ever changing environment. In a way, yeah, yeah, you're 100 percent right. You know, first off, I love the college football playoff. You know, I think I catch a lot of people off guard when I say that. You know, in my in my role, you know, how can you not? You know, I'm I'm a college football fan first. It's great for the sport. Uh, we need a mechanism to crown a national champion. But the rest of bowl season is just as important. In fact, it's more important to a greater number of institutions and a greater number of student-athletes than, than just, just the 12 teams that are in the playoff, to your point. You know, there are, there are a lot of programs across the country that, that compete at the highest level and, and try, to, try to build and, and try to maybe try to get to that playoff someday. And our, you know, my beloved Syracuse Orangemen fit in this this category. We're we're simply not going to 
be in the playoff on a regular basis, right? And, and, and we're not the only ones. I mean, you, you go through the majority, the ACC, you go, you know, most, uh, you know, all, almost all the group of five schools, you know, but even, even schools in, in, the, in the Big Ten, you know, I tell people all the time that the commissioner of the Big Ten does not just work for Michigan or Ohio State. They work for Rutgers in Maryland and in Indiana and in Illinois and Minnesota, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so if, if the powers that be in college athletics uh, somehow have a postseason system and let's say the bowl season didn't exist, which is never going to happen, but if it didn't, and we only had 12 opportunities for 12 teams out of 130, then they, they all failed, you know, so that's simply not going to happen because bowl season is just too important and too meaningful to too many people. Well, Nick, and you know this as somebody who is an alum and roots for Syracuse, this has become the standard at a place like Syracuse. Whether you make a bowl game or not determines whether you had a successful season or not. You know, the, the year was interesting here because Syracuse started 6-0 and and maybe up the expectations of what kind of bowl they could go to, but the standard accepted I guess expectation before the season was make a bowl game and then everybody would be good and kind of rubber stamp this thing forward here. So I think Syracuse is the perfect example of what you're talking about here, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's realistic for any program to aspire to make a bowl game, right? You have to be six and six and and, and you get rewarded appropriately for that. If you, if you get to that seventh win, that eighth win, that ninth win, you know, I'm not a person who's, who thinks any, any one bowl game is quote better than another, but there's certainly levels of bowl games and, and, and quality of opponent and destination, all that, that factor into winning more games. So there's always, always a next level to achieve to. And if you are a program that aspires to be in the playoffs someday, you know, you need, you need building blocks. You can't go from not making a bowl game to being in the playoff overnight. You need a way to build your program. You, you get to a bowl game. You get an extra couple weeks of practice. You, you get that experience of traveling to the neutral site and playing a unique opponent. And then maybe the next year you go to a different bowl game, and someday you can get there. There are programs that are doing that. But, you know, it's, 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 uh, there, there's so much meaning in these bowl games. And you, you, you said at the top of the show, too, they're, they're – uh, you know, so many people watch bowl games, you know, you know for, for people who say there's too many or, you know, who cares about them? Well, a lot of people do. You know, you look at the TV ratings, the average matchup, if you had that, those same two teams playing in September, October, you know, you all of a sudden you move that to December and you call it a bowl game. It's easily two to three times the number of viewers for that game. It's just kind of, it's kind of a tradition like the holidays themselves. So, so I, 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 think, I think the more bowl games, the better. Nick Carparelli joining us here, the executive director of Bull Season here. Uh, speaking of which, Nick, I know you love all your children equally, but Dino Baber said that he got a lot of jealous coaches on the line when they got put back in the pinstripe bowl. And look, the pinstripe bowl, look, we've seen bowl games come and go. This one's hanging in there. It's it's a staple. I feel like it's part of the discussion every year. Certainly Syracuse was in on it when it first got out there, and, and now here we are, what, 14 years later, I believe. I might be off a year or two since it was created. And the Yankees just have this bowl game that has become a desired entity. New York City, Christmas time, uh, the, still the experience of playing there, and Syracuse is back in it. What's uh, kind of your general overview, not only of the pinstripe bowl, but uh, this matchup and Syracuse being back in it? Yeah, well, it's interesting. You say, you know, like you said, you you, you, you really shouldn't have a favorite child. You know, and I, there's 43 bowl games that are kind of under our umbrella. People ask me all the time, which is your favorite? And I, I don't say it's a favorite, but uh, I have a soft spot for the pinstripe bowl. You know, I, you know, if you, if you know my history, which I, which I know you do, you know, I grew up a lifelong Yankee fan, 
you know, I uh, was a graduate assistant at Syracuse for Coach P and was really, that, you know, that's where I kind of really formed my passion for, for working in sports and college football specifically. And then when I was at the Big East, I approached the Yankees when they opened that new stadium about starting, starting a, new, a bowl game there. And we, we did that together, you know. And then when the first pinstripe ball was Syracuse-Kansas State, it was kind of a really proud moment for me that kind of all my – my my careers, my passions all came together. So to see Syracuse there again for the third time, uh, I'm going to be at that one. You can you can you can bet on that. Uh, it's exciting. Nick, uh, you mentioned it there. You were a grad assistant here at Syracuse back in the day, and I know that you've got some stories to tell about that. We could do a whole show on that. But what's what's one in particular that stands out? And I know that you had a little bit of a hand in, in recruiting this this McNabb kid, who I, I hear did pretty well. At Syracuse. So, what what are the stories you think of when we go back to your days under Coach P? Well, I don't I don't I don't know if there's stories I I, I necessarily want to share, but uh, now they're they're all great. I, I would just say it was such a great experience. Uh, it was my first job in sports, and you know from there I went to Notre Dame and then worked for Coach Belichick after that, and then the Big East, and really got my start. Um, love love Syracuse. I I tell people all the time, you know you. Um, you know, success is, is hard to maintain, you know, and, and this generation doesn't know Syracuse to be as good as, you know, someone as old as me know, knows. And I, I tell people all the time, it can, they can get back there. De- Coach Babers did a great job this year. Great start, obviously. Got, got some injuries, but um, I've seen it done at Syracuse. I, I believe it can be done again to get to that, you know, 10 win level. That's not, not easy. It's not the easiest place to do it. Uh, we worked really, really hard back then. Um, I, I do remember Donovan McNabb's recruiting visit. We went to uh, Marvin Graves was his host. We went to Saratoga Steaks, and I just remember the uh, the table. Donovan wanted to order a surf and turf, uh, and they didn't have surf and turf, so we just huh. let him order lobsters and steaks. So it was, was kind of <laughs> two meals made up the one surf and turf. But whatever, whatever he wanted, he was going to get that 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 visit, and it paid off, I guess. Yeah, yeah, you got to improvise on the spot. You called an audible at the dinner, and uh, maybe that's what uh, you know brought Syracuse football the historic run of Donovan McNabb. All the stories uh, to be told there. Uh, it was all about the lobster and the steak. That's, that's what it was. <laughs> so you mentioned it, Coach Pete. You go on to work for Belichick, and when you work for Belichick, this is when New England took that step forward in that first Super Bowl. How did they? I mean, we know the stories and, and what Belichick did, and Tom Brady and Bledsoe and everything. But from your view, Nick. How did Belichick take the Patriots from you know, a program that had a little bit of success before that to the dynasty they were for such a long time? It was it was the culture. You know, he he quickly uh, built a culture there that was a, a you know a culture built around you know uh, uh, success and um, you know competing at an elite level and, and doing all the right things. You know, he uh, you know his first year there they were five and eleven, and then I came in and obviously I was the difference. Exactly. Uh, but yes, uh, of course. The, the, the next year we go to the Super Bowl, and he, he brought in a lot of veterans. I remember one guy in particular, Anthony Pleasant, uh, who played for him in Cleveland, and I think for the Jets too. I uh, was an older guy, you know, older veteran. Didn't know how much he was going to even play, but he brought him in to really be uh, Richard Seymour's, you know, player coach. You know, his job was to, to play, but to also mentor Richard Seymour. And he had uh, he had a unique arrangement. He was able to. Um, he had a family in North Carolina. He was going to retire, but coach convinced him to play a couple more years. And his deal was he'd play the game Sunday and he'd be able to go to home for a couple days with his family and come back on Wednesday. And, uh, you think of coach Belichick as being really rigid 
and and you you would imagine no way he would let a player do that. But um, he had there was so much value in, in having Anthony there as part of the program and his leadership and the the culture that would revolve around him, especially with the defensive line. That that was the deal, and he said, "All right, um, Anthony, you you as long as you're here and you're all in for those five days, you can go home those two. And uh, it was, was kind of interesting for me to watch, and it worked out worked out great for everybody in that position. Nick, once in a while, I'm, I'm sure you hear this and see this too, but uh, quite often I'll get somebody along the way for whatever reason that will just say, "Hey, that Syracuse, they should have never joined the ACC," right? You can speak to this as well as anybody because you work for the Big East. Was there anything you could have done, not you personally, but is there anything that could have been done to save Big East football? When you look back on it, is it was it just inevitable it was going to go the way it did, or, or could you have done something different that Big East football uh, would still exist? Yeah, it's easy to say now. I, I think it could have could have stayed together. I think we were, uh, in hindsight, we were always a little vulnerable being uh, only at eight teams. Mm. You know, because we were only an 18 conference that entire time. Um, I think uh, we had some we had some leadership at a couple of Big East institution that that maybe uh, felt felt um, like they wanted to do something a little bit different and weren't didn't really care about the you know the Big East and the history and tradition of it. Uh, so maybe if we were a little more proactive, you know, early on and had bolstered the league in terms of numbers, we'd have been in a different position. And I think if people were just a little bit more patient, you know, you look at the TV numbers. The, the 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 tipping point was when we had a we had a 125 million dollar TV deal ready to be signed, and everybody in the league was doing backflips. And then the Pac-12 came out with this 200 million dollar deal that included you know the Pac-12 networks, which ended up being you know not very successful for them. You know now they're renegotiating, and it's not even a big bump. I right. I think if we stayed together, we'd have, we'd have caught up to that. So. I think we need a little bit more patience, a little bit different leadership, and maybe maybe being a little bit more proactive on the front end in terms of the size of our league. And uh, maybe maybe we'd still be together. I don't even like to think about it because I get a little bit emotional about it. I loved working for the Big East. I was a Big East fan before that. Big East basketball tournament might have been my favorite week of the year every year. Uh, but uh, it is what it is. That's what people miss. And, you know, when they – Georgetown just this past weekend and St. John's they cross paths with again but even football like Syracuse at the height of what you said McNabb and and when Pasqualoni was really you know running things and when Syracuse was year by year that team that was Big East football there was something there it was a short-lived thing but you could say not only Big East basketball but Big East football and some warm and fuzzies come up there were some great games and great rivalries even in a a league that, like you said, only had eight teams, and maybe if Penn State joined, it would have been different. There's a hundred stories we could tell differently here, but uh, there is something there when you say Big East football. I agree with you. Yeah, and, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. I was talking to somebody about this the other day, and there could be a number of reasons for this, but if you, really, if you think about not just the Big East, but if you think about all the schools that made waves with big conference realignment moves you know, in the last 15 years, you know, are they better off now and more successful now than they were before? Boston College, Virginia Tech, Miami, Syracuse, Pittsburgh, West Virginia, go to other conferences, Missouri, Texas A&M, um, Nebraska. Like, uh, you know, it's kind of hard to find one. You know, so again, there could be a lot of reasons for it. Uh, sometimes the grass isn't always greener. Nick, last thing for me here. Uh, once upon a time, I was having a conversation with Sean McDonough on this program and, and Sean McDonough, My guy. 
Your guy. Yep. And here's where he's certainly your guy. Sean went into a very passionate uh, pitch for one Nick Carparelli to be the athletic director here at Syracuse University. So looking back right. on it, was that something you were flattered to hear, or was that was that a possibility? Was that something that uh, an alternate universe? You're you're the AD here. Well, I was uh, regardless. I was flattered for sure, and uh, I didn't hear him say that. Although a number of people told me they they yeah. heard him, and uh, and uh, yes, I was I was very interested in the job when when John Wildhack got it. I was um, you know very excited when John was hired. You know, if it wasn't going to be me, I was a really big, and I still am a big believer that if you have a qualified individual to be a, uh, an AD at a school, if they're an alum, they, they, they're going to be that much better because we see a lot of ADs in the country that sure they're doing their job, but they're trying to advance their personal career as well. And so many times you see decisions being made at a school that maybe is in the AD's best interest, but not in the schools. And it looks good for the AD. And then um, they get a bigger opportunity and leave. Meanwhile, they leave the mess behind them. You know, you have uh, when you have an athletic director who's an alum, and, and I know John Wildhack loves Syracuse University. He's passionate about uh, the school. He works really, really hard. He's a good friend. And every decision John makes is not in the best interest of John Wildhack. It's in the best interest of Syracuse University. So I feel really good about him in that role. Nick, thank you for this. Would love to do it again down the road here. You're welcome anytime.